Well, last week, folks, we talked about the meaning of real religion. And I used the scripture, James 1.27, out of the message. I said, real religion, the kind that passes muster before God, the Father, is this. Reach out to the homeless and loveless in their plight and guard against corruption from the godless world. Now, last week, we focused on reaching out to the homeless and to the loveless in their plight. But this week, I want to examine that second part of this definition of real religion. And that's guarding against, what does it say? Guard against the corruption from the godless world. I learned this verse, actually, in the New, in, uh, New American Standard. I love it this way. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress... And to keep oneself unstained by the world. I love the way that that's that's expressed. Keeping myself unstained by the world. Now, one of the things I learned when I was in Bible college from our uh, one of the, the professors that's like the theologian in all of the Church of the Nazarene. I had the benefit of having him as a prof in Bible college. And he told us, students... If any of you ever have opportunity, the best Bible to have is the New American Standard Bible. Because it is the closest to a word-for-word translation out of the original. Since I'm not a Greek scholar, since I'm not a Hebrew scholar, I use the New American Standard whenever I want to get the true sense of what's going on. Because I trust that this man knew what he was talking about. So, using the New American Standard and using this word unstained... I wanted to focus on that. Well, first of all, the Greek word that is in this verse, I'm not a Greek scholar, I cheated, I looked it up, is aspilos, and I could be pronouncing that wrong with with the wrong accent, but aspilos or aspilos or aspilos, I don't know. It literally means spotless or without or unstained. It's only used about, I think it was like less than ten times in all of the Bible. But this idea of being unstained is, well, I don't know how to describe it other than this. How do you get, keep from getting stained? We live in Alaska. Most of us, if not all of us, live on a well. <laughs> this past week, my family experienced true Alaskan living because the water system at the church and parsonage went haywire. And it's still not working, and that's why you'll see some signs on, on, on the, the RO unit downstairs. Don't use it at this point. Um, my daughter, unfortunately, went and got a Malibu treatment just the other day, and then took a shower last night and came upstairs after her shower and said, Look at me! I don't need to get any kind of a suntan spray, because it came on me this evening! And she was orange from head to foot. <laughs> So she's going to have to get another Malibu treatment before she goes to the hospital. Because she said, I don't want to be laying in that bed having a baby smelling rust in my hair. (laughs) But literally, not only are we experiencing visible staining on our clothes, on our dishes, on our skin, and our hair. There's that heavy metal smell. It's nasty. You know what it is. And my wife is refusing to let me use my lye soap anymore. Because she said it makes the bathroom stink. Because of the lye soap mixed with the heavy metal. So, the frustrating part for me is that no matter how much we are washing and washing and rewashing and using iron out, the stain is just continuing or getting worse. 
Why? Because we're continuing to wash using the corrupted water. We have to get away from that corrupted water in order to be able to bring cleanliness back into our life. The water softener either needs to be fixed, board members, hint, 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 or we need to go elsewhere to find uncorrupted water to bring into the house. Thank God we were able to do that this week because the, the food bank had 20, thank you, gallons of distilled water that we were able to bring and use for drinking water and, and other stuff. But, um, but the reality is we've all experienced it. I mean, every single one of you that has lived on a well, you know what it's like to see that rust stain coming down the sink and you know you've got to go change the salt in the system or whatever, change the filters. Well, with this idea of being stained or uncorrupted, that's how we need to react when we're practicing this real religion that James is talking about. In order to keep ourselves from being stained, we need to remove ourselves from the corruption. Would you agree? Okay. Many Christians, both past and present, literally all the way back to the year 270 CE or AD, depending on how you, how you mark your calendar, 270, the third century, there have been Christians, the desert fathers, the desert mothers, who have literally separated themselves from the world in order to live a consecrated, holy lifestyle before God and for the kingdom. Literally, these people have felt called to be separated. And they are living what is known as a quote-unquote religious life. If you look up the word religious in the, in, the, in the dictionary, there is literally a term that says a religious is a person who has taken monastic vows. In other words, a religious is a nun. A religious is a monk. A religious is a brother. A religious is a friar. A religious could be a priest. Anyone who has chosen to separate themselves and live separate from the rest of the world can be termed a religious now, don't hear me saying that I don't think these people are truly called to live monastically. Because I do believe that they are called to do that. I think God calls certain people out for certain specific reasons. But I don't necessarily think that that's the way all of us need to live. If Jesus Christ is our chief example of how we should live a Christian life, shouldn't we follow his example? And... In his example, I would submit to you that to truly follow this example, we need to take on the mind of Christ when dealing with the world. We need to think like Jesus thought. We need to act like Jesus acted. So what did Jesus do in relation to the world? How did he live in relation to this corruption in the world? And turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. This is, a ver this is a section of scripture that is actually in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's almost word for word in all of them. I chose Matthew, Mark 2 because there's a couple changes of words and I like the way it said it here. But let me read it to you. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him and he taught them. And as he was walking along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi got up. And followed him. And as Jesus later on sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. 
When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to Jesus' disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he said to the scribes of the Pharisees, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not on the righteous, but sinners. So what example do we see Jesus setting for us out of this passage of Scripture? Well, First, we see Jesus associating with sinners. When challenged on it, he was able to justify his actions by saying, those who are well don't need a doctor. It's those who are sick. If I've come to bring healing, I need to go where the need is. In other words, he had a cure, if you will, for the sickness, their sin, the cause of their sin. He held the cure. So it makes sense that he would take the cure to those who needed it. But we see something else in Jesus' response to these challengers. He said, I have come to call the right, not the righteous, but sinners. You see, he didn't just hang out with sinners because he had this cure he wanted to let them know about. He literally came to call the sinners. There was an intentionality about drawing them to him. So what does that mean? Well, I would submit to you that he offered the cure to the sinners while he hung out with them. He spoke the truth to them. He challenged them. He confronted them. Look at the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Where are your condemners? Where are those who are wanting to stone you? Well, sir, there are none left. Well, neither do I condemn you, but go and don't sin anymore. Look at the woman in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. Jesus met her at the well. And he confronted her. She said, I perceive you're a prophet. He said, yeah, I'm a prophet because I know about the five men that you've been married to and the one that you're actually living with right now, he's leaving your husband. She's like, ooh. See, Jesus didn't pull any punches when he talked with sinners. But he didn't make them feel nasty, dirty, ugly. To make them feel nasty, dirty, and ugly. He shined light, which made them recognize their dirt, their corruption. But then he offered them a cure for their sickness. Well, The mind of Christ that I said we need to have is that you would go where sinners are and you would make them aware that you have a cure for what ails them. Agree? Nod your head. Say, yes, pastor, I agree. Then why don't you? Why aren't you? Because what is the most normal thing for normal Christians in Western culture? Think about it. Isn't it more normal for us Christians to gather in holy huddles? With other Christians gathered around us, not forsaking the assembling together of brethren, as some are in the habit of doing, rather than going out and slogging our way through corrupted waters with the people of the world? What is the difference between the way religious and 
Western Christians live. What's the difference between being a monastic and being a Western Christian who gathers in holy huddles and only listens to Caleb? I would submit to you that we have erected barriers around ourselves to keep us from being stained by this corruption of the world. Wouldn't you agree? What about the adage, garbage in, garbage out? We set up barriers to protect our hearts, to protect our minds from being corrupted by a worldview that is contrary to healthy Christian worldview. Think about it. What barriers have you erected in your area of entertainment? What kind of music do you listen to? What movies do you watch? Oh, what kind of music do you listen to? I just heard yesterday, forgive me for putting you on the spot here, sir, but did you not just tell me that yesterday that you're starting a 30-day challenge to only listen to Christian music? Okay, I'm not confronting you and saying what you're doing is wrong. I'm saying it's part of the culture of Western Christianity to isolate yourself. What kind of music do you listen to? What kind of movies do you watch? What books do you read? What television programs do you watch? What choices do you make in regard to your friendships? With whom do you regularly hang out? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, says to us, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So everything that we've been talking about thus far, this setting up, erecting of barriers to keep us unstained, it's totally appropriate. It's scriptural. Garbage in, garbage out. Don't allow the filth into your life. Do not become stained. Do not be associating with bad company. It corrupts your morals. James chapter 4 verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world becomes an enemy of God. I can justify all of my holy huddling using these verses. But is it the mind of Christ? Is it the way Jesus lived his life before us so that we would know how to live out the life that God is calling us to and to see the kingdom of God advanced in our time, in our location, with our Oikos, our circle of people that God has given us influence over. Now, before we get too far into this line of thought, let me affirm each of the actions that we've talked about so far. Being intentional in our choices of entertainment, being intentional in our choices of friends, is a very positive thing. It most certainly helps us to live out the admonition to keep ourselves unstained from that corruption that we talked about. But with all of these barriers in place, how do we reach sinners with the gospel? Mm-hmm. Where do you turn for counsel? Where do you turn for someone to build you up? Okay. Well, let's let's think about this idea of barriers being a hindrance to expressing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel to the community in which you're responsible. Let's think about it in practical terms for just a minute. 
Trying to present the gospel to sinners without being in relationship with those sinners is kind of like standing off at a distance and shouting the truth at them. What is going to be the result is that they will probably, most likely, they will hear you. But they will ignore you completely. I would submit that the only effective way to share the gospel is to be in relationship with the sinner. You will be much more effective in sharing the truth of the gospel sitting in the living room of the sinner while sharing a cup of coffee or tea than you will by shouting at them from a distance. I was convicted in my own heart last Sunday when someone I was speaking with here in this church came up and said, I know the names of all of my neighbors. I could not say that. I don't know the people that live across the street. I've never seen their face. I know there's people there. I know the Walters who live over in the Purdy's place, but I don't have their phone number. I can't reach them. I can't talk. I talk with him on Facebook, so I guess maybe that counts. But I don't know anything about the kids' lives or what's going on in their world. And they're across the street from me. This isn't a normal suburban area. I understand that. We don't share common border boundaries and have the line of sight with people. But the reality is God has put people in your life that you see continually and regularly, whether they're your best friend or just an associate, but they in your life. And what influence are you having in any way in bringing them closer to a faith in Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul agrees with me, how so I'm right. Okay, let me show you. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 to 23, Paul wrote, If I proclaim the gospel, this gives me no ground for boasting, for an obligation is laid on me, and woe to me if I don't proclaim the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not my own will, I am entrusted with a commission. What then is my reward? Just this, that in my proclamation, I may make the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became like a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, these are Gentiles who are following the the Mosaic law, I became as one under the law, even though I myself am not under the law, so that I could win those that are under the law. To those who are Gentiles, who are outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so that I might win those who are outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things that I might by all means save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I might share in its blessings. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. That is my life verse for my ministry. It was chosen long before I knew that there ever was a Two Rivers Alaska or a Two Rivers Community Church in the Nazarene. But once I got here, I realized very quickly how important it was that I apply it to my ministry here. I had to quickly adapt myself to my new environment. Let me share you a few illustrations of my early years here. 
I came in July of 2003 for a weekend. My wife and I were flown up by the church. We got here Thursday night. We spent all day Friday, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, and we flew home on Monday. And every person I met to the letter, if they were male, they said to me, do you hunt? Do you fish? Every single male. I was brought up in the suburbs. My dad's dad died when my dad was 13. I, I'm scared to touch a fish. And when the, when the state police called me after being here only one month and said, Pastor, we've got a moose for you. Really? What am I supposed to do with it? Well, you're going to come and butcher it and give it out to people in your community. That wasn't part of the interview. <laughs> and the first person I call, Mary Hiller, says, Oh, pastor, it's a vital ministry in this church. We do it all the time. Our, our pastor used to do it. Not this boy. So my answer when these men would ask me, Do you hunt? Do you fish? I'd say, Well, no, I don't. I'm not opposed to hunting or fishing. I just never grew up with it. It wasn't part of my culture. That was my answer, almost verbatim, to what I said every time a man asked me, do you hunt, do you fish? And you know, I've been here now almost 12 years, and in all the years that I have been here, not one man has invited me to go hunting or fishing. In hindsight, what I should have said in response to their question was, no, I don't, but I'd love to learn how. Because it would have opened a door for relationship. Men learn side by side. Women are face-to-face, men are side-to-side, shoulder-to-shoulder in the way that they relate. So if I had given the men of this community an opportunity to teach me how to hunt and how to fish, we would stood, we'd have stood shoulder-to-shoulder and I would have had deeper, more intense relationship with the men of this community than I have today, 12 years later. That's just one. This was another one. Said to me at a board meeting, by a member of this congregation. You are not going to turn this into a lower 48 church. Well, to be honest, I had no idea what that meant. And even today, I still don't really know what that means. But I quickly realized by that expression that they were sending me the message that there were some people in this congregation that didn't quite trust me. Either they had been harmed in the past or I wasn't putting out the right vibes, but they didn't trust me. So I needed to establish a good relationship with the people of this congregation before they would ever accept my ideas. And I think I've done a good job because now, after 12 years, it's not a fight when I bring up something. When I did before, oh my word. Years ago, for those of you who don't know, I tried to make that room my office. You would have thought that I shot the Pope. I got a phone call the next day. It would not be politically expedient for you to continue to pursue this, Pastor. Okay, I guess I won't. Now, I'm not complaining. I'm just telling you, this was the, this was the situation when I first got here. There was some people who didn't trust me. And that's okay. I, I was able to work it out and relate with them, or they left. And I'm not saying that as a, as a funny. That's the truth. If they couldn't get along with me, if they couldn't trust me, if they couldn't depend on me as their pastor, they left. And we had a number of families that did. 
Another thing that had to happen in the way that I learned to relate to this community, I had to change the way I dress. I love sweaters. Not sweaters. Knit wool sweaters. Cable knit sweaters. Cardigans. I love sweaters. When I first moved here, I had 25 sweaters in my wardrobe. Today, none. Today, I have 10 hooded sweaters in my closet. I also started wearing Carhartts on a regular basis. Before moving to Alaska, I had never heard of a Carhartt. (laughs) I had to change my vocabulary when I moved here. Sweater, outside, snow machine, I know what G and Ha mean. (laughs) I am no longer a Chichaco, but I'm not quite sure if I've met the status of being a sourdough yet. (laughs) I don't know the requirements. You'll have to educate me because that's not been part of my culturation here in this community. But even after intentionally making these changes in my lifestyle, my language, my mindset, I still didn't have much impact in the community. I had better relationships with this congregation, but I didn't have community impact. And the opposition from when the congregation did go away, but I had no influence out there. And the solution? I had to find ways to enter into relationship with the people of this community. I became a board member of the Pleasant Valley Community Association. I have been their treasurer for seven plus years. You do not want me figuring a a checkbook. I have had to struggle. This is not my skill set. But it is where God has placed me and has given me a voice in this community. I have become... Uh, Renee and I have faithfully attended the 4th of July community picnic. Now, we didn't one year so we could go to the Nazarene family camp down at Camp Maranatha. Do you know what heartache we got when we got home? Where were you? We missed you. Sorry. We also attend the community Christmas party every year. Except this year, because it happened to be my wife's birthday, and she just didn't really feel like going and being social with anybody at that time, and I didn't either, so we didn't go. Oh my word! You would have thought we shot the Pope! (laughs) They had a cake. They had a half-sheet cake waiting for her to sing happy birthday to her. We didn't know. They didn't say anything to me. So we found out later that we kind of burned a little bit of a bridge there, so we had to make some amends. We go to people's parties we were in, when we're invited. I mean, I've, I've even gone to a celebration in the bar at Two Rivers Lodge. The pastor of a Nazarene church sitting in a bar? Yeah. I'm developing relationship with the people of this community. And if you've got a problem with that, talk to my district superintendent. Who did? <laughs> it has taken years. It literally has taken more than a decade, but I am finally accepted as a part of this community. I know now that I have good relationship with the people in this community, and I will have a much, much better opportunity of sharing my faith with them. They listen to me because they know and trust me as being one of them. Hopefully someday I will see harvest from the seeds that are being planted. I will tell you that 
most recently, about three weeks ago, I was stopped during the food distribution at the community center and someone came up to me and said, as a pastor, can you tell me what your thoughts and feelings are on evolution and dinosaurs? I'm here trying to distribute food and show the love of Christ. And you want to talk about dinosaurs? Sure. And I stood there for 10 minutes talking about my beliefs on on dinosaurs and evolution. And then we talked about it. And what had happened was this person, this adult, had made a child cry by telling them that there were dinosaurs and that their parents were wrong for teaching him fundamentalist doctrine. And he felt bad about it. And he wanted to have some understanding from a pastor of what the Bible has to say. And he, I was the third pastor he had asked, I found out later in that conversation. Do you think that he would have stopped me eight or nine or ten years ago and asked me that question? No. But because over the last seven years of being actively involved in this community, intentionally going even when it wasn't convenient... I have established enough credibility in that person's heart and mind that they felt comfortable coming to me with a theological question. That's exciting to me. I don't know where the harvest is going to be or when it's going to be. One of the things I've taught and I've learned, I learned years ago and I've taught subsequently is that when bamboo is growing, it takes upwards of five years for the root system to establish itself long before you ever see any production above ground. Five years of work on the part of a farmer before they ever see anything. But once it starts, you can almost hear it growing. It's that fast. And that's what I'm anticipating. We have been laying a foundation for more than a decade here. People ask me all the time, well, you've been there so long, are you going to go find someplace else? So why would I give up all of the years of relationship building that I've done? That would be stupid on my part. See, in all of my efforts, I have been intentional in reaching out. But I've also been intentional at keeping myself from being unstained while doing it. I went to the bar. I didn't smoke a cigarette. I didn't drink alcohol. I didn't cuss. I was a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ at a party. It just happened to be located at a bar. And see, there years ago, I would have been thrown out of my ear by the church for doing that. But the reality is, folks, if you want to get into those lives and be a part of their lives so that you can speak truth into their lives, you've got to go where they're at. Amen. While living out this life verse of mine, 1 Corinthians 9.22, being all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some... I have to butt back to 921 that says, To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. You see, regardless of what I'm doing, where I'm going, who I'm associating with, I am always a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am under Christ's law. I have a responsibility to keep myself clean and pure. And live a holy and righteous life. So that I would bring glory to God. In Jude. Chapter 1. Since there's only one chapter. Verses 20 to 23 it says. But you beloved. Build yourselves up on your most holy faith. 
Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Look forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are wavering. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And have mercy on still others with fear, hating even the tunic defiled by their bodies. See, when it comes to sharing the gospel with sinners, when I'm trying to be intentional about not getting stained while I'm working with these people in the corrupted waters that they're living in, Jude gives me threefold advice. Number one, have mercy. I need to show Christ's love to everyone I meet. Number two, I need to be intentional and watching for opportunities to snatch people out of the fire. I have a great responsibility to actively engage with people in sharing the truth of the gospel. It is my responsibility because I'm the keeper. If I have it and I don't share it, God will hold me accountable for their blood. It says that in Ezekiel, if you don't believe me. But in not only showing the love of Christ, not only intentionally sharing the gospel, I have a responsibility before God that while I'm associating with all of this corruption and these people that are caught in fire and in corruption, I am to hate the defiled tunic. While I'm working to save the sinner, I need to make sure that I don't get sucked into the corruption that they're being defiled by. That may mean that there are certain situations I can never go into. That may mean that if some woman comes and says, Pastor, I need counsel. My husband is beating me up. That I make sure my wife is physically present when I'm counseling that woman. Why? Because she's emotionally dry. She has no love from the one that she thought she was going to get love. And she's looking for love from a man. And when you get into the intimacy of counseling, there's a danger of soul-to-soul contact that can end up with a physical contact that's totally inappropriate. So in order to make sure that I do not allow that to happen, my wife is present when I counsel women. There are certain responsibilities as Christians we have to do. It's just the way it is. We have to, like Paul said, put limits on ourselves, not because we're under the law, but because it's appropriate and right to the situation you're in when you're trying to bring about the kingdom of God. The bottom line, I need to safeguard my integrity. I need to walk in holiness while spreading the gospel message. Because if I don't, and I become stained Not only will I fail to reach the people with the truth, but I will give the kingdom of God a black eye through my failure and someone else may end up being lost forever because of it. Can you imagine, folks, if I ended up having an extramarital affair, what it would do to this community? What about Pastor Wayne Shea if he were to have an extramarital affair or murder somebody or be caught in embezzlement? What would it do to the kingdom of God in this community? And you guys aren't in this visible spot that Pastor Shea and I are in, but you're just as much on the pedestal being watched. You have a group of people that God has surrounded you with that you influence. They look to you 
Because you're the only God they're ever going to see. And if you fail because of carelessness, heaven help you. In order to practice real religion, we need to have the mind of Christ. We need to reach out to the homeless and the loveless in their plight. James 1.27 We need to speak the truth of the gospel in love. We need to be in relationship with the sinners in our community. We need to guard against being stained by the corruption of the world. And may God grants, mercifully grant us success as we intentionally take on the mind of Christ.